Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. Thanks for tuning in and becoming a part of our growing River Talks community. This week, we heard from Kevin E. Smith, professor of anthropology and archaeology at Middle Tennessee State University. He discussed some of the human effigy ceramics created by ancient Native Americans in the Nashville area, focusing on the hero twins whose stories center on their adventures at the time of creation. Um, before traveling back to Nashville about 80, 1350 or so, and then even further back in time to the time of creation, I, I want to acknowledge that, that this uh, story that I'm going to tell you is the product of a multidisciplinary set of scholars working under what we call the Tennessee Cumberland Iconographic Working Group, which is based at MTSU. Uh, including my friends and colleagues, Dr. David Dye, who's an archaeologist and photographer extraordinaire uh, at the University of Memphis. You'll benefit from his photographic skills uh, today. Robert Sharp, an art historian and retired executive director of publications at the Art Institute of Chicago. And George Langford, a uh, retired professor of Native American folklore at Lyon College in Arkansas. So for, for over a decade, much of our research has been focused on pursuing the symbolism behind what today we would call art or artifacts, but were created by the ancient artists as the sacra of religious rituals centered on the time of creation, uh, and, and probably most of them particularly with the goal of the, the bringing back, the reincarnation of the souls of, of dead children. So today, I'm just going to focus on one part of, of uh, 35 years of my life. Um, I can't possibly touch on everything, so I'm just going to touch on the myths of the hero twins today. And I do want to say as an introduction that unlike um, the K'iche Maya, where, where we have a written version from the early 1700s uh, in the form of the Popol Vuh, which many of you may be familiar with, and much of that is about the, their hero twins. Um, less well known is the fact that ancient Nashvilleans had their own distinctive and I would say equally exciting version of those stories. These were stories that were shared throughout most of the Western Hemisphere by agricultural peoples. Uh, in fact, in 1949, the famous anthropologist Paul Radin considered the twins' story so important in his major book on them that he described it as, and I quote, the basic myth of the North American Indians, unquote. So the stories about the twins are told everywhere, from the southwest to the northeast to the southeast, and they varied. There are thousands of versions of them. Um, the version that I'm going to present today, if we bought, brought, say, a dozen people back from AD 1350, who lived here then, and let them, with a universal translator, listen to me tell a version of their story, they would probably all go, that's not quite right. Because what we're doing is we're trying to reconstruct things that are lost, long since lost. So this will not be an exact version of the stories that were being told uh, back then, but it's as close as we can get with what survives. Uh, to today. And here I'm going to present our most recent interpretations of that iconography based on 
a large set of human effigy bottles and bowls, a few of which are shown here, uh, and even a few non-human effigies. As our interpretation suggests, these are all local iconographic constructions that reflect our own Nashville version of the Hero Twins myth cycle. And, and this is a grand myth cycle. If we actually knew it and were able to write down all the stories that were being told here, it would be hundreds of pages, maybe a thousand pages. Uh, fortunately, we only have lunch time, so I'll hit the high points, maybe. So for those of you that aren't familiar with the uh, Mississippian period from around 1000 AD up through around 1600, uh, I'll give you a brief introduction. The, this rendering on the left uh, is a generic view of the Mississippian cosmos. It was created as part of the Hero Hawk and Open Hand uh, exhibition, museum exhibition several years ago. Throughout the region, the cosmos is divided into two broad, into three broad realms. The above world, a place of harmony and order, exemplified by the fact the sun rises in the east and sets in the west every day, and when it disappears for an eclipse, that's kind of freaks people out. Not supposed to do that. But the, the above world is expected to be predictable and orderly. The uh, beneath world is a place of disorder, chaos, and death, exemplified by the eddying waters of the ocean, rivers, springs that rise up from the beneath world uh, and, and come to us here. And, and the final realm is ours, where we live as humans, uh, which we'll just call this world, or the human world. So again, if we went to the specific folklore of a specific Native American culture, today we might find the upper world is actually divided into 14 layers, and they all have names, and we know who lives there and what lives where. So this is a generic view. This is kind of the, the base most thing that was generally shared by everybody in North America about how the cosmos was divided up. And I suspect this broad view would be generally recognizable to people who lived here in Nashville, but they would again say, it's not quite right. <laughs> but, and then the 10-year-olds would be correcting all my mistakes, which is a great thing about folklore. Um, today, for, when I start off, I'm going to draw upon some examples from um, modern American pop culture to illustrate a few points. Uh, understand I intend in no way to trivialize the importance of the indigenous beliefs that I'm talking about by using those examples, but I simply hope that for some of you, they will help illustrate some very complex cosmological concepts that I don't have time to grade you on today. Um, upon death, human souls traveled to the western rim of the earth. So over there, close to the two serpent heads that are anchoring the earth, keeping it from floating around too much. They went there because that's where human souls were able to enter the path of souls. And the path of souls is shown on the right here, what we would call today the Milky Way. And that's the road that, that the souls followed to reach the 
afterlife. And, and that's not where you had to stop because most of these cultures shared a belief in reincarnation. So some souls might abide for a time in the village of the dead, uh, but then return to become part of their, their living village again. And again, I'm going to suggest that that was the main purpose of the rituals that I'm going to talk about today, was to assist those souls of children who died on an untimely death uh, to come back and, and give it another whirl. So first pop culture, one important widespread detail to note is that the other worlds are separated from us by a dome. The sky dome, uh, the underworld is separated by a ceramic pot. So the, the water of the underworld is held in a gigantic ceramic pot and we're floating on a, an earth disk on the top of that water. So human, normal human souls, we just bounce off the dome. There's no way to get to the path of souls. It's on the outside. And so maybe if you saw Stephen King's little miniseries, something like that uh, dome that was mysteriously appeared over that small town. So for us to get through that, for our souls to travel through the dome between worlds requires an opening of some kind, a doorway or a portal. Those concepts are not unfamiliar to us, whether it's Alice's travels down a rabbit hole or through a looking glass or the wardrobe door to Narnia or the entrance to Hogwarts Express or the flu network, just from some recent popular movies. Those are all the kinds of things that I'm talking about ways that we can move from this world to a different place. So that's Mississippian Cosmology 101, quiz at the end. Uh, now let me turn to the role of the twins in this, in this big picture. Um, while the ancient cultures of North America each had different visions of what the twins accomplished at the time of creation, so we're moving back all the way to the beginning now, the version that's most relevant to peoples of the Midwest and Southeast and, and Nashville, uh, we believe, are the stories that are generally called the stories of Lodge Boy and Thrown Away. Uh, in the beginning, when Lodge Boy was born, his twin went unnoticed and was discarded or thrown away with the placenta, which they uh, ritually disposed of in a spring to protect the infant's soul from witches. So he was found by powerful underwater spirits as he sank into the spring who uh, decided to adopt him. So he was raised in the beneath world by underwater monsters. And out of that he came away with extraordinary powers magical powers of the beneath world. His brother stayed in this world, and his powers come from the sky world above us. So between the two of them, they became the most powerful force on the planet because they were able to bring the powers of both other parts of the cosmos together when they fought together 
and nobody could beat them when they were together. Among a lot of others, and these are, uh, there perhaps might be tens of thousands of stories that we've studied to develop this kind of understanding of the mythology, but uh, the stories tell about their cleansing of the world of monsters to make it safe for humans to live here, the creation of the very portals that allow our souls to pass into the path of souls, and retrieving powerful magic weapons from the other worlds that they brought back and shared with, with human warriors. And we'll look a little bit at all of those, more at some than others. So that was Mississippian Hero Twins 101. So let's, let's turn to the artifacts proper then. Uh, and maybe I should also say that Nashville was one of the most densely populated parts of the North American continent at 1300 AD. Uh, we had one of the largest sets of native people um, at that time. It didn't rival the city of Cahokia um, a century earlier, but uh, probably quite a few of the people who lived in Nashville came here from Cahokia and the surrounding area uh, as Cahokia began to collapse in the late 1200s. All right, we'll start with the rattlehead rim rider bowls. So they're, they're rim riders because the heads are riding on the rim of the, of the bowl, right? And they're rattleheads because the heads of the bowls are hollow, they're filled with clay pellets or pebbles that rattle when the bowl is shaken. Over a decade ago, I noticed that rattlehead rim rider bowls from Nashville only include two themes. The rarest of these are the owl bowls, shown here, most seemingly depicting great horned owls. And there aren't a lot of them, but they're important, so we'll come back to them in a minute. A lot more common are representations of human-like figures. The most common is that shown on the top here, with an upright rattlehead facing the interior of the bowl, often with only a lug or tab handle but occasionally fully modeled with arms and legs, like the one from Traveler's Rest, whose staff are at least partly here today um, on the upper right. The other form is on the bottom. It's a fully reclining human figure, which are always fully modeled, so with legs and arms. And, and if you look, you'll see the, the legs are, are kind of uh, short and stubby looking which will be important later. Um, what they share, all share in common, are rattleheads, those fat stubby legs, uh, pursed or rounded open mouth, and usually coffee bean, what we call coffee bean eyes, just because they look a little bit like coffee beans. But <coughs> if you study a few hundred of these, uh, it becomes clear that there are two subgroups of these, two groups that represent two different individuals. The first shown here in my original study a long time ago I called Prowhead because we don't know what his name was and that's all that occurred to me at the time. 
but a handy label for us to use when we're when we're talking and arguing about what what they are or what they mean. We'll give him another name in a minute. He's characterized by a four-part hairstyle or headgear, the prow of which is uh, almost certainly a version of a roach or a mullet, which I'll show you in a second, along with three apparent hair buns, one on the back of the head and, and two on the, each side of the mullet. The second subgroup we originally called Conehead for obvious reasons, perhaps. Nothing to do with Saturday Night Live. Uh, this is conical-shaped hair or headgear looped over the top, uh, sometimes pierced like the one in the middle on the bottom there. And obviously either the same guy wearing very different hair or two different characters, right? But out of the hundreds and hundreds of these that we've looked at, those two characters will comprise 99% of, of every male figure that's shown. Um, now, Conehead is very widespread, found throughout the Mississippi River Valley, where he was originally identified, but our local version we called Double Strand, because all of the ones from Nashville have this uh, two, uh, two strands, right? Coming down the back of the head. And, and that's almost unique to Nashville. There's only maybe three or four that come from southeast Missouri. They were probably taken there from here or copied by people who had been here. So, as I mentioned, Native American hairstyles and how they're combined with headdresses to create striking visual effects are way too complicated for me to try to go into here. But a few examples will, will capture maybe the key elements that we perceive to be shown on the balls. The, the mullet, or what some people might call the mohawk, shown on, on Chartarish, Pawnee chief on the left. And then uh, the famous iconic image of Sitting Bull, showing his two long braids uh, coming down from each side of his head. The illustration on the right, it's just there to show you how complicated it can be to figure out from a simple ceramic bowl exactly what's going on. So that's a headdress, but it's secured to the hair by pulling parts of the hair through holes in the uh, roach and then secured with pins. And, and if you've ever been behind the scenes at a, at a modern powwow, you realize how complicated what people do with their hair and headgear is. But I gave you my best guess, anyway. In their 2014 article, Conehead Effigies, a Distinctive Art Form of the Mississippi Valley, uh, my friends George and David presented an argument that the Mississippi Valley Rattlers were a regional representation of the wild twin, or thrown away. Having been aware of their research, Emily Beam and I suggested in 2012 that the double strand from the Cumberland River Valley was our version of that same widespread theme. So double strand is thrown away in the stories. So um, rather than just have you trust me on this, I'll try to take you through some of the logic. Um, among the exploits of the twins, there are lots of stories about the, the origins of rattles. 
and I'll just give you a generic version. Thrown away was sitting on a gravel bar with his brother, Lodge Boy, and he said, Hey, cut the top of my head off. Is it off? Yes. Take my brains out. Okay. They're out. Put a lot of stones in my head. All right. I sew my head back on. Okay, so there we are. Two brothers sitting around, shooting the breeze. Then he uh, shook his head, and it rattled. Not to be outdone, Lodge Boy made him do the same thing to him. So both of the heads of the twins become rattles in these stories. And those are charter myths. I mean, they're humorous stories, but they're also about how the sacred rattles, one of the most important musical instruments in the Southeast, came to exist. The twins invented them. The twins are the rattles. And the rattles, when they're being used in many rituals, are the twins. So why did the bowls rattle? We would suggest there's two characters shown there, and they rattle because they're the twins, right? And I'll remind you here that the twins may look like humans, but they're not. They're divinities, and they're a bit capricious at times. They're usually described pretty much as somewhat mischievous boys, hence the term lodge boy. For kicks, it's like, uh, come by, it's like, oh, sorry, I just shot you and killed you with a bunch of arrows, bro. It's all right, I'll bring you back to life. So they run around doing that all the time, killing each other just for kicks and resurrecting each other. Uh, it's just as a reminder in the stories that we're not really dealing with with little boys here, and we should be thankful that uh, our two-year-olds and grandkids don't have magical powers. <laughs> uh, in other stories, which I'll talk only a little bit about, they're called Thunder Boy and Lightning Boy. Um, but almost always with the boy designation. They're, they don't always appear as boys, but there's that notion, but, but they're not they're not bound by form. We find that usually the female divinities are are depicted as females, but occasionally they have a penis. So, uh, uh, and the artist is making some specific statement there that that we can't get. But again, I think it just underlines these are gods, right? Uh, we depict them in certain ways most of the time, but. But they're all powerful, and they can do stuff that we can't really visualize. So, Thunder Boy and Lightning Boy. Thunder Boy being Lodge Boy and Lightning Boy being thrown away. Are uh, weather powers. They, they control the weather, which will be important towards the end of my story. But uh, they're also, they also are the storm with capital letters, right? So when the storm rolls through with thunder and lightning, that's the hero twins traveling by. And sometimes they're mad when we have tornadoes, and you might see 
a little sample of how powerful they really are. So the notion that the artisans of ancient Nashville routinely used key markers like hair and headgear and regalia to place these characters within specific plot elements. You know, there's uh, dozens and dozens of different stories about the twins. And most of these artists want to tell you which part of the story they're, they're talking about. So they use specific things to tell us, which is fortunate for people like me who are trying to figure out the stories without the stories. And we're having to rely on stories from the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries. Um, one of the first publications resulting from the Tennessee Cumberland Working Group in 2011 concerned the iconography of the Thruston tablet from the Tennessee State Museum, a very complex tablet that was probably made at the Castillon Springs Mound in Sumner County and found at Rocky Creek nearby. Um, it's about this big. It's one of the most complex iconographic tablets ever produced in the Mississippian world. And the, the picture on the right just gives you a little idea of, of how much, how rich the illustrations are in terms of, you know, what he's wearing, what's going on with his face, stuff in his hands, repeated over and over again. So we concluded back then that the Thurston tablet might represent a storyboard illustrating a series of vignettes drawn from the twins' myths. There are several different panels in there, each of them containing two characters. And you can see interp preliminary interpretations from 2011. On the top there, we have three representations of what is probably thrown away, and on the bottom, three that are representations of Lodge Boy. And I'll come back to why we think that later. So if, if this tablet is all about the twins and we have two bowls, two kinds of bowls, we're going to argue are the twins, then that strengthens our argument. But what is the double-strand version? We're going to try to figure out what that means. In the, and I'll abbreviate this, Lodge Boy Thronway LBTA. It's the abbreviation we use for that, that sequence. In the LBTA opening sequence, opening story, there's a task that takes various forms depending on which culture is telling it to you. The lost twin, he's been raised by wolves, you know, in the underworld, but he wants to come back and play with his brother, the bonding of twins, so he comes back out the spring where he was discarded long ago and plays with his brother and then he goes back away again. And the father eventually figures out what's going on. Uh, their mother died during childbirth. Um, so he has to figure out a way to tame the wild boy because he wants to bring him back into the family. And there, there are lots of ways that that happens. But one of the ways, which also comes from Mesquite Pawnee, is that in the pretense of de-lousing his hair, he ties the hair up with buckskin strings, buckskin thongs, and later he cuts the hair off and the strings and the hair become part of a sacred bundle, uh, which is still used today in some modern Native American rituals. The wild boy always wanted his hair back 
But as long as it was kept in the sacred bundle, he stayed with his, his father and brother. And so we, we assert that the double strands represent those buckskin thongs tied to the hair as part of that taming ceremony. And there are other elements of the taming ceremony we'll come back to, back to in a minute. Support the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks program and podcast by donating today. You can find the link in our show notes. For those of you who are not satisfied with my argument that there's two sacred personages, the twins shown here, um, the artisan who crafted this bowl from Cross County, Arkansas, clearly felt, felt compelled to underline the fact that rattleheads are about two personages, two heads, not just one. While the bowl is about a century or so later than those from Nashville, it does come from an Arkansas site that was very strongly influenced by people from the Cumberland River Valley. So uh, that's the value of David and Robert and I have probably photographed uh, at least tens of thousands of objects in museum and private collections all over the country. Uh, and, and a few from around the world, but it's that one artist, you know, who decides I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to make sure that people know exactly what I'm talking about here. Those provide the key to kind of confirm or deny what you're thinking about the others. All of the fully reclining rattlehead bowls, there's not a lot of them, but they all appear to be a version of Lodge Boy. They're, they're, none of them have any of the characteristics that would suggest to us that they're thrown away. And these are unique to the Nashville area. Three unique anthropomorphic effigy slab figurines, all from Davidson County. They may also be related to those reclining bowls, possibly, although we don't have any Rosetta stone for that yet. The two showing the lower body both share the fat, stubby legs of the rattlehead bowls. That on the left also exhibits a typical prow head hairstyle. These have been traditionally referred to as cradleboard figurines, but uh, if you actually tie a baby up like that, bad things happen to it. So Robert and I have argued that, uh, that these are not cradle boards, they're someone bound to something with ropes, tied to with ropes. As George discussed as early as 2007, there are stories of the twins that relate to binding and scaffolds. Another short version. You're not supposed to sleep during the daytime. This is one of the morals of this story. So Lodge Boy and Thrown Away took a, a lunch nap. And while they were asleep, a long arm came out of the sky and grabbed Thrown Away and took him up into the sky. And that's what happens to you if you sleep during the day, um, at least outside. So this is the chief of the sky god, called Long Arm for obvious reasons. So Thrown Away has been captured. The sky people don't like, people from the beneath world. So that's why he picked him out, other than the Lodge Boy. 
So they tie him to a scaffold, bind him, perhaps like this, and the women of the village proceed to torture him. And if you went to a modern storytelling of this, it could be fairly graphic, but I won't go into that detail over lunch. Um, but anyway, he's not having a great time. So Lodge Boy wakes up and he's like, what's going on here? He figures out what's going on. And he turns himself into an arrow and shoots himself into the sky. Sneaks into the village. Um, sneaks into a house of an old woman at the edge of the village. Probably his grandmother, but um, we don't know that for sure. Where he steals a knife. Well, it turn out to be a magic knife. So that he can cut the bindings from his brother and they can escape. So they're lowering themselves back down to earth by a handy rope that reaches all the way from the sky to the earth. Magic rope. When uh, the long arm comes down again, uh, going to grab him again. So Lodge Boy takes his magic knife and he severs the hand from the arm and that stops the second kidnapping. The hand drops and becomes lodged in the sky dome, becomes what they call the hand outlined by the stars. This is a hand constellation, which is part of the what we call the constellation Orion. You can see Orion's belt up here as part of the hand. So, obviously, the people of Nashville who created these objects here were familiar with the hand constellation. This is uh, one of the finest examples here from Smith County, Tennessee. And the perforations tell us this is supposed to be a descending hand, like the constellation is shown here. And you can't you know, be able to see it too well. This bottle's not in really great shape. But there is another hand, descending hand here, which also has the same sacred fire motif in the center. So the hand constellation is where your soul enters the path of souls. When the hand constellation descends and touches the western horizon, which only happens during a brief time of the year, that's when the souls who are gathered at the edge can attempt to leap through and enter the path of souls. And, and if you miss, bad things happen to you, um, and, and you don't make it any further. So it, there, there are tests all the way through for you to get to the, to the end of the road. And the first one is being able to jump through this. So the twins are the ones who created the portal that allowed the first souls to enter the path of souls. So, and maybe I should say again, remember all this is taking place at the time of creation, the beginning of time. People are not really here yet. They're not around yet. And the twins are doing all this stuff, fixing the world up so that we have a little more comfortable place to be. It's possible, if not even probable, that the famous Dover Swords of Middle Tennessee 
uh, are ceremonial representations of, of the long knife that was taken by Lodge Boy from the house of the old woman in the Sky Village and then used to sever the hand of the chief. And you can see on this gorget, this is from North Georgia, but um, we have, this is probably Lodge Boy here uh, carrying the, a long knife. Now let me turn to negative painted hooded effigy bottles. On this vessel form, negative painting is tightly restricted to three types of effigies. The one on the left that we call Our Lady of the Cumberland, who is a version of the Earth Mother, our local version, the cult created in Nashville uh, about her spread throughout Central Mississippi Valley, Missouri, Arkansas, uh, even as far south as the Gulf Coast by the 1500s. She's probably one of the most ancient deities of North America. She predates agriculture. She becomes the corn mother when agriculture comes in, but she was certainly around um, before that. Personification of, of the mother, right? The mother of us all. But this is Our Lady, Our Lady of the Cumberland. And she wears a very specific garment. The shawl that she's wearing was a creation of a woman in Sumner County, Tennessee, about 1300 or 1275 AD, maybe. In the middle, we have owls again, but negative painted owls. And then on the right, a character that we called Bloody Mouth when we first looked at him in 2009. There were only a couple of these to start with, uh, and then we searched museums all over the eastern United States, and we now have over 15 examples. Almost all of them are, were painted by two women who lived in South Nashville around 1300 to 1375 AD. Uh, one of them is probably, she's either the apprentice, but I think probably the daughter and apprentice of, of the other one. And almost, uh, I would guess that so far, probably 80% or 75% of the, the finest negative painted bottles that were made were made by those two women from the style that, that, that they're used at. So the ability uh, eventually for us to talk about two specific women, artists who lived hundreds of years ago, is pretty exciting in result. So, um, Bloody Mouth, of course, is best exemplified in this example uh, in the Peabody Museum, which was excavated uh, in Nashville in the late 1800s. And, and that's the clearest example of this mouth surround, uh, brownish red mouth surround. And he's also got a funky hairstyle, right? It's different than the other ones we looked at. So this is another character, maybe. But the personage also exhibits nested circles. All of them exhibit this nested circle motif, which is another clue. So who is this mysterious personage with a painted mouth and a funny hat? Well, again, an artist in uh, Southern Illinois 
gave us a clue. This was shared by my colleague Brian Butler from uh, Illinois. A singular artist at the Kincaid site gives us a rattlehead rim rider, which seems clearly to be bloody mouth. Right? So this is a rattlehead. And like many of them, somebody drilled a hole in it to make sure those weren't gold pellets inside, which was a story that was told for a long time. Uh, almost always clay. But you can pretty clearly see that same mouth surround now on a rattlehead. And it's got the right hat, too. So bloody mouth appears to be thrown away as well. But he's in a different part of his story because he's wearing different stuff. So if we look back to the stories of the twins, another part of the opening sequence of the twins' myths includes one other way that the wild boy had to be domesticated. So um, from a Caddo story and several other stories, they said the unknown boy, which is what they called the wild boy, looked queer. He had a rather long animal-like nose and very long hair. So in order to domesticate him, in that story, they had to cut off the nose. And if we look again carefully, it's not really a bloody mouth. It starts on the tip of the nose and runs down around the mouth and down the chin. So we believe that this tells us that this is another element of how the wild boy was domesticated in the Nashville area. And, and there is another version where we have long animal-like teeth, which have to be filed down. But they don't show teeth on those, so I don't know if that was part of the Nashville story or not. If we go back to our uh, twins bowl from Cross County, Arkansas, that artist who seemed compelled to tell us extra details. If you look at it carefully, you'll notice that one of the twins has a bloody mouth and the other one does not. And those are the details you don't notice unless you're really looking for them at the time. And I don't know who that artist was, but I appreciate, I appreciate her a great deal. Um, moving on, another anthropomorphic vessel form known from ancient Nashville, but more common in southeast Missouri, are two-faced bottles, sometimes called Janus bottles or Charleston bottles. Given that there are two faces, they obviously beg for interpretation as the twins. Fortunately for us, at least one artisan from the Rutherford Kaiser Mounds in Sumner County elected to grace one face with a red mouth surround, captured nicely by Phil Phillips in his early photographs, shown here on the upper left, and, uh, and his notation on the card, red paint on face. And he doesn't say faces, which might be coincidental, but the other face does not have that mouth surround. So Two-Face is both of the twins. It's Lodge Boy and Thrown Away. Just another way of showing the twins. So we're now convinced that almost all of the anthropomorphic imagery created in, on the Cumberland River relates to the three most ancient, powerful, and sacred personages of the greater southeast. Corn Mother, known here as Our Lady of the Cumberland, and the twins, which comprise the bulk of the ceramics. 
three more puzzles, first of which is the overlap of Nashville owls, both rattleheads and negative painted full-figure bottles. That suggests at least the possibility that the owls have something to do with the twins, if that's part of the twin story. Oh, and this bottle is uh, made by one of our two artists. So they were making all of these different depictions. Now, the notion that powerful shamans can transform themselves into owls is very widespread in North America. So the association of owls, transformations, and magic is well known. But we're left without any surviving folklore describing this as the power of the twins. And, and that's the unfortunate part, is that some of the stories have completely disappeared without ever being recorded. That they were lost during the period of conquest and colonization. Um, elders died. The stories didn't get passed down. Whole cultures vanished, and, and all of their stories went with them. So we don't have any surviving stories that tell us that. So what leads us there is our analysis of the greater corpus of all these bottles and bowls and things. That, that's the only way we could have reached that conclusion is by having studied everything else. Fortunately, though, out on the periphery, and I keep going out to the periphery in Missouri and Arkansas, and, and they sometimes call that the paradox of the periphery, is that sometimes people at the edge of where the stories are being told, they add more details because their audience doesn't really know all the details. So maybe our Cross County, Arkansas artist, she's adding some extra details because the people she's making that for, they're not really as familiar with the story as the people from Nashville. So we, we go out to Missouri, Southeast Missouri, where a lot of people from Nashville moved in the 1400s. And we find artists who made owl bottles with mouth surrounds. And they don't show up too clearly in these pictures, but if you see them in person, they're precisely the same kind of mouth surround. And that's not totally convincing. Uh, if you take a snow owl who's just eaten a mouse, um, they have a natural mouth surround that happens, uh, a natural plume of blood that comes down uh, for a while. But unless we take this into account, this is in the LP body, also from Southeast Missouri. And this artist said, by the way, these owls have two heads. So that's a fairly convincing support for our suggestion that the owls are uh, a magical transformation of the twins, that they, one of their abilities is to transform themselves into owls. And that that was part of the important part of the story. Our second puzzle involves three other kinds of negative painted craftnik bottles from ancient Nashville, the so-called dog bottles, which are, have been described as some of the finest ceramics ever created in the Western Hemisphere. They're decorated with concentric circles. And then we have in the center, simple craftic bottles. These also decorated with concentric circles. And then another form, which is decorated with a raid circle or a sun circle. And the equal arm cross in the center is very clearly widely accepted as a representation of the sacred fire, uh, which is the central, the heart of the community. 
sacred fire that was always kept burning in, in the temple um, of the main communities. So the dog bottles, uh, we argue, are, are the Nashville version of a much wider spread set of uh, bottles. Uh, most of those in the Mississippi Valley are, are, are cat pots, cat monsters. They're clearly feline, and they're known there, and we know it for historic folklore as underwater, pan <coughs> underwater panthers. Um, and, you know, if somebody drowns, that's because one of the underwater panthers took them. Uh, whirlpools are are places where the underwater panthers hang out. So they don't really like us that much, maybe for dinner, but um, these are the spirits in Nashville, which look more dog-like. They don't have the same feline characteristics. They're probably first made in Nashville and then the dog pots kind of spread out to other parts of the Mississippian world later on. But at least two of these, they have the concentric circle design on it. We'll go back to the Thruston tablet again here to look at thrown away again. One of the consistent markers, if this is thrown away on the top there, is on his garment, we have concentric circles, or on his chest, we have concentric circles, uh, over and over again. And that seems to be uh, one of the most important markers of him. So if that's the case, then it seems possible to us at this point that the dog pots, those underwater dog monsters, um, are thrown away as mom and dad, right? His adoptive parents. That that's why he's marked with the same symbols from the monsters that adopted him when he was thrown away. And those would be the source of his powers. And then a few others, this from the Rutherford Kaiser site. Here we have a clear owl, negative painted with sun circle design. So that I believe is Lodge Boy in his owl avatar mode. So in addition to his incredible magic, what Thrown Away got from being raised in the underworld was his animal-like nose, long hair, and the markings of his adoptive parents. Looks like I'll have to talk fast for the last five minutes. All right. Um, we don't need to go through all the details. A few other pieces I do want to mention, though. The Leitner Cup fragment, uh, probably made in Nashville or made by an artist from Nashville. This is a fragment from a large whelk shell cup, uh, probably about this big, with a cutout on it. And, and this is uh, another depiction of Lodge Boy here and thrown away here. And Lodge Boy is always, always wearing fur or hide garments, and Lodge Boy is always wearing a textile garment, a woven garment, 
So it's civilized versus wild again, over and over again. And the ice around goes with Lodge Boy. And we have the line face of the Thruston tablet. And our edible style gorgets are found in this area. Probably one of the most famous marine shell gorgets ever is this one from Castellan Springs, which is almost certainly made by the same artist as the Lightner Cup. Um, you can see the similarities if you compare them. If you notice here, which I looked at for 25 years before I noticed that the head in his hand has two strands of hair, one of which he's holding and the other that's hanging down. So this has been interpreted as a severed head of an of a enemy lots of times, but um, I think that it's a reflection of another twin story. Another set of the twin stories tells us the origins of the Mississippi and Chunky game. This is a chunky stone in my hand here from near Castellan Springs. Uh, perhaps in the Nashville version of the story, thrown away travel into the other world to play a ball game with the Giants. This is again at the beginning of time. Um, but this is known historically as the little brother of war. So this is not just a sporting event. This is serious business. Thrown away lost, probably because he's fighting people in the beneath world who share his powers. And his head was cut off and placed in a tree at the side of the uh, ball field. This would make the NFL draft much more difficult, I suspect. But uh, the gorget, I argue, is Lodge Boy retrieving the head of his brother from the underworld, bringing him back here so that he can do what they do when they shoot each other with arrows to bring him back to life. And his head doesn't stop talking. If you know the Popol Vuh, in that story, his head's jabbering away and won't shut up because he's, he's mad because they cut his head off. And we do have a bunch of edible style gorges to show chunky players. So there's a few examples both of Thrown Away and Lodge Boy over and over again with our lines on the face. He's got his fish lips, which is a different story. All right, to, to finish off, seconds to go. Um, the period from AD 1300 to 1475 in Nashville was a very turbulent time period. Uh, local residents were experiencing multiple mega droughts, which we know from tree rings. There were four mega droughts that hit Nashville between 1300 and 1475. They survived quite nicely the first three, but the last time is when we see the collapse of local populations around 1475. So lots of things were going on that were not good. Mega droughts last, these lasted from eight to 12 years, total crop failure. So you're having to rely entirely on what you can scrounge up. The infant death rate goes up to 75%. So three out of four of your children will die. Uh, mothers died frequently during childbirth from malnutrition. Um, warfare went up, obviously. The next town over, they had some rain this year. They have some stuff stored away. 
uh, let's go take it or we all die. So what happens during these times, very stressful century and a half that they endured, uh, often people turn to religion and they turn to the most ancient of their deities in, in a plea for help to the corn mother who's shown in those bottles and to the twins. And these are revitalization movements. They're ancient gods, but new spins on them. We have to come up with a new, new set of rituals that will work. Virtually all of these objects were buried with children in the Nashville area. And we argue they represent the sacra of a complex of religious movements that emerged to deal with the population collapse. This is very similar to what happened with the ghost dance movements of 1870 and 1890. The primary objective of the ghost dance revitalization movements was the return of the dead, the return of the native dead, and the return of the buffalo. So we suggest these are prehistoric examples of exactly the same thing. People's religious plea to the gods to return the souls of their, their dying children to save their villages from um, falling apart in the face of almost overwhelming challenges from the environment. That's just a little glimpse into the epic myth cycle of the National Hero Twins, as much as I can cram into slightly over an hour. But I, uh, I can't really do them justice in an hour, but I, I hope you'll leave with a, a little greater appreciation for the, the grandeur of the civilization that was here beneath us just a few centuries ago. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's talk. To join in on the fun and hear the Q&A session from our weekly speakers, come visit us in the River Center in Nashville, Tennessee. But until then, thanks for listening. We hope to catch you next week with a new episode of River Talks.